Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the inflation impact on the military versus civilian pay raise next year. How quickly we could roll things back in the cloud versus on-prem. So our on-prem process to deploy things onto our legacy hardware was fairly tedious, took sometimes hours to do with our new architecture, we're able to do it in minutes. And a cloud surprise at the National Science Foundation. But they plus up the military pay raise, they may not necessarily plus up the, the DOD civilian pay raise the same amount. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. More than 60 companies have task orders today from the third round of awards on the STARS-3 contract from the General Services Administration. GSA has awarded task orders to a total of 154 companies through the three rounds. The total value of the contract could be as much as $50 billion. An outage of the Cerner Electronic Health Records System the Department of Veterans Affairs deployed at its healthcare facility in Spokane, Washington, harmed at least 148 veterans, according to the VA Office of Inspector General. An IG investigation found the Genesis system hasn't delivered more than 11,000 service orders. The investigation found Cerner knew about a flaw in the system before it deployed, but didn't fix it or let VA know about it. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The intersection of identity management and cyber will be in focus at the OctaGov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders will be at the conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City this coming Thursday. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Senate's blueprint for defense authorization is complete. Senate Armed Services Committee completed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act Thursday. Todd Harrison, Senior Vice President, Head of Research at Meta Aerospace. Todd, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What stood out in your mind as you read through what the Senate passed? 23 to 3 in the yeah. SASC is, it seems to me at least, to be an accomplishment in and of itself. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. Well, yeah, it shows that there's, you know, continued bipartisanship when it comes to national defense issues. Uh, that's not a big surprise. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting about it uh, is the top line dollar that they're coming out and recommending. Now, I always have to give the caveat, the National Defense Authorization Act does not set the budget. Yes. Uh, that requires appropriations bills. But it is an indicator of where, you know, members of Congress are leaning. You have to take it with a grain of salt because the armed services committees are inherently stacked with pro-defense people. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're coming in. I think uh, the, the SASC mark was $45 billion more than the Biden administration's request, um, which, you know, is a, a substantial increase. I think a fair amount of that um, is compensating for the fact that, you know, we've got much higher uh, inflation than was planned in this budget request, and they don't want to see the defense budget decline in real dollars. Uh, but they're putting that money, uh, you know, in lots of different places uh, around the budget. It is far from being finalized. Uh, and obviously, the appropriations committees get the last word. Uh, on funding. But I think it shows that, you know, this year, there's going to be a substantial increase 
above the budget request. The first place that a lot of people go is hardware, and I understand that, and that's reasonable, A10 and on on and on. We can talk about some of those things. The first place I usually go is pay raise, and I'm, I was surprised to see the number under 5% in an inflationary environment that's well above 5%. What does that say yeah. about anything, I guess, on the landscape in your view, Todd? Yeah, so you know they're they're endorsing what the administration requested, which is what is already in statute, uh, and that is a, a pay raise that's equivalent to the employment cost index for two years prior, uh, and that came out to four point six percent, right? Um, and so they're sticking with that. I am a bit surprised as well because the inflation that service members are feeling right now, the consumer price index, is north of eight mm-hmm. percent. Uh, I, you know, I kind of, I still suspect that you know by the time all is said and done, once the um, the two armed services committees go to conference committee, I think in the fall they may come out with a higher uh, pay raise than four point six percent, but. They haven't gotten to that point yet. And the reason that I go there first is because almost I'm trying to think of a year where it didn't work out this way and one doesn't come to mind. That's not to say there wasn't one, but almost every year, whatever the troops wind up getting, civilian federal employees wind up getting too. That, that is true. That is the, the norm. Uh, you know, there are years that were exceptions. It tends to be years uh, when the budget is tight and Congress is looking where they can trim some money. And, you know, then DOD civilian pay, um, you know, if they're going to cut anyone's pay, it'll be the civilians first. But in the vast majority of years, uh, the military and the civilian pay raise are the same or very close to one another. Uh, and so that that was also requested in this year's budget request, 4.6% pay for DOD civilians. Um, you know, it, I, I wouldn't necessarily count on if the Armed Services Committees come back in the final compromise bill, if they plus up the military pay raise, they may not necessarily plus up the, the DOD civilian pay raise the same amount. Uh, so I wouldn't count on them being equal uh, in the plus up situation. All right. On the hardware front, what stood out to you? You are obviously space focused, but I imagine you're looking all across the landscape to see where the uh, Armed Services Committee would like to direct the money. Yeah, I, I you know, I am still sorting through the details uh, of what's come out, uh, but they're spreading the money around pretty widely, um, you know, in terms of what I can see. Um, you know, in space and missile defense, um, you know, part of what they're doing is requiring more studies uh, about things, uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, force design and what they're planning on, um, you know, in future years. Uh, you know, one one space acquisition I've been following in particular uh, did get a, a directed report uh, in the SASC bill. And that is, and this was a surprise when the budget came out, the Space Force requested uh, money to go out and buy two new narrowband communication satellites, MUO satellites. Uh, the total cost of those two satellites would be $4.7 billion over multiple years. Um, that was a shocker uh, because that's something that they could procure commercially for a much lower cost uh, and, you know, had not really been communicated that well uh, in advance they were planning this. Um, 
And that is something that in the SASC bill, they've been directed uh, to do uh, a report on that, um, you know, uh, and a you know, better understanding of how that capability that used to belong to the Navy is being transferred to the Space Force. And that's probably a broader theme that we should expect to see in the next couple of years. I saw a post from one of the commands on uh, Space Force commands, I think it was on LinkedIn, where they were intaking a uh, number of sailors that were actually moving, you know, and, and would be based inside a Space Force unit. And I imagine just that clarity of what that looks like is mm-hmm. something that a lot of people on the Hill will really want to know a lot of detail about. Well, yeah, when the Space Force was stood up a few years ago, back in uh, December 2019, um, you know, they said at the time that the trans the transfers of personnel, you know, it's not going to happen all at once. It's going to take several years. Now, the bulk of the personnel, of course, came from the Air Force and have been transferred over. Uh, and some personnel from the other services have started to be transferred over. There's still a few more, uh, you know, they're going to come, but it's relatively small numbers from the Army and the Navy that, uh, you know, are still going to be transferred. So it, it's mostly done, but not completely when it, it comes to personnel transitions. I note the irony, too, uh, that the executive summary document from the SASC is 31 pages. I mean, that that should that tells you something right there about the level of detail here. So it's completely understandable that you're still processing this given that it, it came out yesterday. But as you dig into the line-by-line line stuff, what will you want to see, Todd? Yeah, you know, what I want to see um, is, you know, what, what is the sense of Congress when it comes to some of the key modernization priorities? Uh, you know, of this department, uh, hypersonic weapons, uh, missile defense, uh, space, of course. Uh, but a big one, I think, is JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. That's been a, a big focus area of the department for good reason. Uh, that's one of the things I'll be looking for throughout this budget season is, you know, where's Congress coming down uh, on JADC2 and what do they see as the, the path forward? Uh, the House Armed Services Committees that work on theirs, what do you see as far as the way they sync up so far? Do, what indicators do we have of how they might match up and what conferencing might look like? Yeah, you know, there's uh, always going to be, you know, lots of little details uh, different between the two bills. But the big thing I'll be watching there is where does the the HASC come in in terms of overall top line? Um, you know, and of course, some of the major acquisition programs, F-35, things like that, shipbuilding accounts, uh, always uh, a big interest item. Uh, but really, where do they come in at the top line dollar? Because that'll give us a better sense of, you know, where both chambers of, com- of Congress are uh, when it comes to the overall defense budget this year and the range of possible outcomes we might be looking at. Uh, when it comes to appropriations, it, it is notable that the uh, the House uh, Defense uh, Appropriations Subcommittee uh, came out with their mark, uh, and it is basically the same level as the president's request. Uh, but they said that when it goes to the full appropriations committee later, uh, that it's likely to move higher. Um, so you know that not doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that that's a good indicator <laughs> where, where that subcommittee marked up. Um, but, you know, I think that these are some of the things we got to keep watching uh, in the coming months. That leads me to my final question, which I asked you in an email yesterday, which is with or sack D. I mean, we have 
appropriations on the House side, authorizations on the House side underway. Senate at least is at, at one finishing point on the authorization side. And I haven't heard anything at all about the Senate Armed Services Com- uh, Defense Subcommittee. Yeah, Senate appropriators, uh, you know, tend to, to lurk back behind the scenes. They're, they're obviously doing you know, a lot of work, uh, doing a lot of oversight, having hearings, um, but they tend to hold their fire. Uh, and if you look in previous years, they often move last, uh, certainly later uh, than their House counterparts. Uh, and in some years, uh, we don't even get uh, an actual bill uh, voted on out of the SAC D subcommittee. So, you know, I, w- I wouldn't hold my breath okay. uh, waiting on SAC D. Uh, they may be a while uh, if they ever uh, come out with a bill. Uh, they're still doing their work behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, obviously something will eventually get through the Senate. Uh, but they don't necessarily operate on the same schedule. Keeping their powder dry. Todd Harrison's great to talk to you as always. Thanks, my friend. Great to be back. You can read more about the NDAA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The National Science Foundation's cloud transition has reached its website, A note on beta.nsf.gov says the agency's building its new site iteratively. Bill Doss is chief of the research director at Systems Branch at NSF. He tells my FedScoop colleague, Wyatt Cash, some of the foundation's cloud story is typical and some of it isn't. NSF was running a data center out of our building in Alexandria, Virginia. So the way things that were hosted on-prem changed a lot. The biggest thing though for us was we used our cloud migration to be a catalyst for all of our improvements in the architecture um, as well as our processes. So we broke down all of our monoliths, all the things into microservices and got a lot of the rewards that a lot of people get from doing that, being able to independently deliver things and just increasing that service velocity, delivering enhancements, requests, new features. Um, and we paired that with our DevOps processes and our CI/CD pipelines that we created. Uh, we had a pretty low adoption, but as we moved to the cloud, we made sure that all of our applications were using these processes. So we got to do things faster. Also part of re-architecting, we did everything in containers and leveraged a Kubernetes architecture on AWS. So this really increased our application resilience and our operational uptime. Prior to moving to the cloud, almost every release we did we incurred downtime on the weekend and we had a lot of developers up late at night on the weekends. We still have some of that, but now we're doing it in a way that it's seamless to all the end users. Uh, so we have things like research.gov and we wanna make sure that anybody who's gonna work on their proposal to NSF or do a business transaction can get to that system any time of day, anywhere in the world. And when we were in our on-prem data center, that just wasn't really possible. Um, So we like to see this as just being a better steward of the resources and the facilities and other things. Um, Speaking of which, we've also noticed we've had a really big reduced burden in maintenance because we adopted that Kubernetes architecture, our footprint and the number of servers that we have to maintain has reduced significantly. Um, And 
since we are doing a lot of things with proposals and with awards and running panels as part of our mission, um, just the whole scaling aspect of the cloud is so much more conducive to what we're doing. We see big deadlines and our biggest deadlines, the graduate research fellowship program, which has 16,000 applicants roughly every year. Well, we don't need that application to be running 24 seven at the volume needed for that. And so in the cloud, we can scale up, we can scale down, we can turn things off, turn them on. Um, and again, it's kind of a textbook benefit of the cloud, but it's just been really huge. Um, and the last biggest, uh, big significant improvement we've had um, is just having those cloud native technologies in place like S3, CloudFront, other things you really can't do with a single data center in the DC metropolitan area. Well, let's um, take me back just a little bit and can you describe a little bit more, what, what were the primary technology challenges that your agency faced in delivering services to the public that made the cloud so attractive in the first place? Sure. Um, so as I said, we had some big monoliths. Um, so we had very legacy applications, one of which was created in 1994, running on very old hardware in the building. Um, so this became really hard to upgrade, patch, find people who even knew how to do that. Um, and then also just being able to do releases. It was a big effort to coordinate things in a way across those people and teams to release enhancements. Um, so as we broke that monolith down and made it as part of our cloud migration, we were able to then take that technology and now have concurrent development environments and have multiple scrum teams running on it. So breaking that down though was a big challenge because everything was very tightly integrated to the database. We had to use things like the strangler pattern to get things out and into containers. Um, so it was a very big challenge based on where we came from, but we ended up in a really great place. And then can you point to a couple of examples of how the public has been better served, some, some outcomes, if you will, that the clouds allowed uh, NSF to achieve compared to where you were even a couple of years ago? Yeah. Um, so the biggest one, um, I don't know if anybody here is uh, seeing the pictures of the black hole at the middle of our galaxy. Uh, so we just released that, um, I guess, last month. But in 2019, we had the first picture of the M87 black hole go out. And that was released on our web servers on nsf.gov in our data center. And that event was a huge challenge for us. We had to scale up the VMs on-prem. We were having network issues. It was not a disaster, but a really big challenge. And people were getting pretty slow page loads and response times when they were trying to get those images. So fast forward to 2022, we have our new website on beta.nsf.gov completely running on our AWS architecture, and we have it integrated with CloudFront. So we had way higher than our normal daily page loads, but actually faster performance because of the distributed way that CloudFront works. Um, so just an amazing way that we were running something we had very little, it was basically a blip on our radar in terms of service, but the public got all that imagery, all that news, that media event went off really well. Um, it was just a huge improvement over a few years. Um, we've had a few other things, just being able to use things like S3 EFS that have the encryption in transit built in. A few years ago, we were using on-prem SANS, NFS mounts, um, and we were really able to secure and lock down our machines more by just integrating with those cloud native technologies. Um, 
So big improvements have been made and hopefully the public has been enjoying our website and our systems with those kind of things. No, I remember seeing that picture when it was released and the black hole was very impressive, but uh, how the cloud helped you bring that to the public uh, also sounds very impressive. Uh, lastly, what, what one or two key lessons or surprises maybe um, did you experience moving to the cloud? And you know, um, how else do you plan to adopt additional cloud services going forward? Sure. Um, so the biggest surprise for us as we were breaking down those monoliths and our legacy applications, we had planned to incrementally migrate a lot over. So we're very agile. We like to deliver things in sprints. And we had the idea that every month or so we would be moving a new piece up to the cloud. Well, as we did performance testing, this hybrid scenario running things like our database on-prem and microservices on the cloud, we realized that we were having an increased latency. So we established a direct connection which is something I would advise most agencies to do. Um, but then also we had to be more strategic about the pieces that we incremented, incrementally moved and when we moved them so that pieces that were calling each other were moved in groups and bunches. Um, the, other, the other thing I wanted to point out, which is more of a positive surprise, was how quickly we could roll things back in the cloud versus on-prem. So our on-prem process to deploy things onto our legacy hardware was fairly tedious, took sometimes hours to do. With our new architecture, we're able to do it in minutes and do blue-green deployments and things, and it really reduced the risk of our releases. So it's kind of just a positive surprise that when we run into issues, we had a really quick rollback plan and strategy, um, which allow us to have that great operational uptime, but also push things out faster because we knew we had a lower risk of doing that. Um, Our next steps, uh, we're going to be embracing some more Azure services and moving some pieces of Windows. A lot of things I talked about are in AWS right now. Um, so we're going to start an Azure presence as well, but also looking to integrate with more of the low-code solutions out in the cloud. Things like Salesforce, we're experimenting with uh, things like Power Apps to get our citizen developers out there. And then how can we tie those into the transactional data we maybe have in AWS and other other places? Um, so got a lot of things to come and hopefully it'll be a ex- exciting as an adventure as we've had the last few years. Bill Doss of the National Science Foundation. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It will help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.